0: O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it's good to be back with you. Uh, My family comes back tomorrow, but my boys are ready to be back. They've decided they like the desert much better than the woods. The desert doesn't have chiggers, poison ivy, mosquitoes, or thunderstorms. So a few days ago, David says to my wife, Mommy, can we go somewhere safe, like, <laughs> like Phoenix? So David's ready to come back. Well, this morning we come to a, a new, well, not unusual psalm, but a, a, a unusual for us psalm. Because we as a culture, as Americans, tend to do whatever is necessary to avoid lament. We don't like it. We insulate ourselves from it. Why? Well, because we want to present ourselves as competent. Able to deal with things. Successful. Ambitious. Now, there's a good part of that. I mean, there's nothing more um, sad than seeing a people that are just resigned to their fate and are are lazy and slothful and, and feel in, unable to do anything about it. But there is a danger in our American can-do spirit, and, and that is that sometimes we are unable to fully process or take in calamity, failure, our weaknesses, our incompetencies, our defects. We, we don't quite know what to do with it. And the truth is that we are frail. We, by nature, are created beings and we are not omnicompetent this is not like Wobegon. Not all of our children can be above average. No one finds themselves coming up short and then hashtags lament. I don't even do hashtags. I don't know what that means, but everybody does that. <laughs> this is the culturally way, the appropriate way of doing things. Everybody's out there presenting this, this show of themselves. It's superficial. We use euphemisms and and, and evasions to cover up the feelings of our hearts. To insulate ourselves from grief, from sadness, from incompetence. But our text this morning, Psalm 6, is not like that. Here we find the psalmist is emotionally candid, is honest, He he doesn't sugarcoat anything, and yet he is also tied to sound theology, to the right way of thinking about God, to, to knowing his relationship to God. And in doing this, I believe this psalm serves as a template for us to think through some of those weaknesses or incompetencies or struggles, our griefs and laments in life. A little bit of background here to Psalm chapter 6. Well, first, it seems to be written by David. Uh, you see there, it says in the, the introduction there, the header, Psalm of, of David. Now, that doesn't necessarily always mean that David wrote it. Sometimes it can be about David. Sometimes it could mean in the style of David or other things. These these little headers there that you see, if like your Bible's like mine where it's in all capital letters, that, that's not inspired. But these headers are ancient, and so they, they do provide interesting information. Now, you can go on and speculate, but I'm just going to assume David wrote it. Okay? It's possible this is from someone else. But for the duration of this sermon, I'm just going to refer to our psalmist as David. Now, historically, this psalm has been categorized as a penitential psalm. That is a, a psalm of confession, a turning away from sin, uh, It shares the the same opening verse as Psalm 38, which is clearly a penitential psalm, uh, and it's been used that way. But there's really no clear confession in our text. If you heard me, there's nothing where he says, Forgive me for I have sinned. So I I don't think that it's best to think of this as a penitential psalm. This is better categorized a lament. This is David grieving over the circumstances in life. It might be be a result of sin, but not necessarily so. The text doesn't say that. Something you can't see just by looking at it is how carefully this psalm has been put together. Uh, this, this, these ten verses come in four parts, and it's the, the first section is verses one through three, and there are twenty-four words in in Hebrew in those three verses. The next section, verses 4 and 5, have 15 words. The next section, verses 6 and 7, have 15 words. And verses 8 through 10 are back to 24 words. So, to recap, 24, 15, 15, 24. Not an accident. The psalmist was going through and balancing this. He's weighing out every single word. This is carefully crafted. And finally, the superscription there. You see it makes reference to Sheminith. Yeah, nobody really knows what that is. The best guess is it's probably a musical term referring to an eight-stringed instrument. So saying that this is to be sung to the tune or sung to the accompaniment of a particular musical instrument. So what we have here is David writing a psalm to put into the mouths of God's people that they can sing it, just the way we were singing here this morning, that he's giving them the very words that they should be singing to God to express the longings of their heart. Thus, this psalm serves as a template for us to think wisely about God and honestly. So the first thing I want you to notice about this psalm is David's Condition, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? It starts out with David feeling that he is under God's anger and wrath. When he looks heavenward, he sees a brass sky, and it brings anguish. Now, it's possible that that is a result of David's sin. Like I said, we we don't know. It doesn't say that explicitly here. So, whether it is that God is angry at David for a sin which he has done, or whether it's that this is the way David feels about the situation. David is looking at his external circumstances and he's not consumed with what he's seeing. He's looking behind that and his real concern is, what is my relationship with God? The the external trials and tribulations are driving him to a deeper level of where do I stand with God? What does God think of me? Is he angry at me? And we see in the psalm here that it's going to be bringing out in him insomnia, depression, and grief. David feels that his physical status is collapsing. This is a grief that has gone right to the core of his being. This is not just he's unhappy about, you know, car trouble. This is, this is, gut-wrenching, I don't want to live anymore. Is it that David is sick and his enemies see weakness and they're coming after him? Or is it that David's enemies are coming after him and that is inducing in him such anxiety and fear that he is sick? It could be either way. The point is this, it's compounding upon itself. Have you ever noticed when you have difficulties, a lot of times it's not this the, the, the straight-up difficulty that's in front of you that's so hard. It's, it seems like it compounds. It, it comes, you know, it's like if, if there's just one thing, I can handle it, but I've got a, a grocery list of problems. And it seems like one thing is growing on the next. When sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. Shakespeare. I liked it. It's compounding. And it shows that David's struggle is all-consuming. His bones are troubled. His soul is troubled. What David is saying is that the whole of me, this goes right to my core. The, the very essence of who I am is troubled. And, and that troubled may not be a, a strong enough Exactly, Think anguish. David is in anguish. And it's in this condition that he is appealing for grace. Whether it's his own sin or somebody else's sin that is is causing this, he's saying, Lord, be merciful. And also David is worn out with waiting. How long? Dot, dot, dot. This isn't something that just sprang up. This didn't happen yesterday. Yesterday. This has been going on. And perhaps what's most discouraging is he doesn't see an end in sight. Isn't it a lot of times that we, we can bear real calamities, we can bear trouble, we can, if we know that there's an ending point. It's amazing how that light at the end of the tunnel brings hope. Even if it's a ways off, even if it's painful, even if it's, there's light. And David's looking down the tunnel and there's no light. And so that's where David is at. He's waiting for... Friends, it's good for us to wait upon the Lord. God is at work in our waiting. The humbling force of powerlessness in ourselves and waiting and endurance in the midst of suffering is one of the ways that God works on us and refines us, and changes us, and matures us into the image of his son. Being patient in suffering is hard, yet it is one of God's tools. We should not resent it. Now, perhaps this morning you're thinking, yeah, that's exactly where I'm at. I know what this waiting is. But some of you are thinking, well, no, I'm not really waiting for anything in particular that I know of. Well, friend, every Christian should be waiting for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of us is waiting. And that is not a coincidence. If you will notice throughout Scripture, starting in Genesis chapter 3 with the first sin, God immediately promises Eve, I'm sending a son and a deliverer. And throughout the entire Bible, there's always waiting for something else. There's waiting for God to act. And God's been waiting for 2,000 years, and sometimes they're like, how long? He's going to come at the right time. He's coming at the right time. He's not coming too soon, and he's not going to be late. The life of a Christian is waiting. They also serve who only stand and wait. So that's David's condition. That's where he finds himself. That's the, the feelings of his heart. And, and now he, he goes further into this. He makes two appeals to God. So David makes a couple of appeals to God for relief from this situation. First, we see in verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? So he starts with the, the thinking about what God has made us for. God made man. Create humans, be fruitful, multiply, rule over the earth, have dominion. Be my representatives. And then out of all mankind, he chose Israel, his inheritance. And he picks them and he gives them a special mission to the world to be this representative. And and then not only did he pick Israel, he picked this specific man, David. You are my son. This day have I begotten you, he says to David. You are a special son to me. I have a relationship with you, God says. You are my beloved. And so it is to this relationship that David is appealing. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. That that word behind that, that Hebrew, is, is hesed, right? That covenantal love. It's not just an abstract love. God loves everybody. No, this is chesed. This is God loves you. God loves this man, this particular of all the people, God looks at him and says, I love you. And David says, if that's true, remember me. Hear my cry. If I die, what glory is that? And here David's making the same basic argument that Moses made. Remember when he goes out into the wilderness with the children of Israel and God says, stand back Moses, I'm going to kill them. They've disobeyed so many times, I'm, I'm going to wipe them out and I'll make a new nation with you. And Moses stops and says, no Lord, don't do that. The nations will think that you failed. And what Moses is doing is pleading God's glory. Look what's going to happen. Look at the display of your glory. If you kill these people, if you kill me, David says, well, what's that say? And so he pleads God's glory. God, you will be more glorified if you keep covenant with me if your son lives than if he dies. And so David is calling out to God based on his special relationship to him. Friend, do you know this morning, consciously, that you were put on this earth to glorify God? That is why you were made. It was not to do well in school. It was not to have a successful career. It was not to have, you know, above average kids and a happy marriage and a a good 401k. You were put on earth to glorify God. Does that shape your decisions? If Jesus Christ is your Lord, if He is your God, if He is your King, you too have this chesed relationship with God. This steadfast covenantal love which God will not relent. Does that shape your identity and your self-perception? Because of David's, second, because of David's suffering, he's appealing to God. He's coming to God saying, look At my suffering, I can't bear it anymore. He expects God to be merciful. I just read a a horrifying article about the Incan Indians, I think it was the Incans, I'm not sure which tribe in Peru, and child sacrifice. Their gods weren't merciful. We often take that for granted. We expect, because I think we're so used to this idea, that God is a merciful God, that God cares about his creation. That's not true of most gods. They demand. They don't give. They give grudgingly. And so there's this, this sacrifice that's needed to win the favor of the God. That's not how, how David sees his god. He looks at this God in expectation that this God is merciful, that he is kind, that he cares about the suffering of his people. And he says, I am, verse, uh, verse six, I am weary with my moaning. I'm weary of this. And then he gives two Exaggerations. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of my foes. He's swimming in his tears. This is not a situation where he's going to pull himself up by his bootstraps. And he expects God to be compassionate. Friend, don't be insensitive to what God is doing in your life life. When you hit those trials, don't, don't just think that I need to suck it up and push through and tough it out, right? There are times for strength, but this is not, uh, that's not what the Bible calls us to. It calls us to a re-evaluation of our relationship with God. That's what these trials are doing in David's life they causing him to reconsider who he is and who God is and how he relates to him. And he turns to God. He turns to him in prayer. And he lays out for him, this is how I feel. I feel like I'm swimming in tears. I feel like I'm drenching my bed. I can't get control. He's honest about his emotions. Friends, be honest. Talk to God about how you feel. But notice in this, he is not blaming God or accusing God. There's a difference there. Being honest doesn't mean that you then somehow act like, God, this is your fault. He's saying, no, God, this is how I feel. Help me, talk to me, tell me what, what? He wants a correct perspective. As we talk to God, as we consider our circumstances and our sufferings in the light of God's word, it will lead us into assurance. And that's what we see in the final section of the psalm. David finds his assurance in verses 8 through 10. It's a startling switch. He's been going on about how he's suffering and how this is all bad and he's, he's negative And then he says... Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the inflection point. This is the point where David goes from his despair And he finally now sees that light at the end of the tunnel. In the midst of all this woe and weeping, David has found assurance that God is merciful. Why? Well, it's frustratingly short. It doesn't give us context. I I can't say what exactly was happening with David. It may be that God sent his messenger, either he spoke or he sent an angel, to assure David, I have heard your prayer. I am with you. After all, is in Scripture, these experiences were divinely inspired for our benefit. But I'll I'll do a little sanctified speculation here. I'll suggest that maybe what happened is that David looked back. They didn't yet have the Psalms all put together in a nice little, you know, capskin book like this. But maybe he looked back at chapter 2. And he reread that covenant and he reminded himself of what Malachi preached last week. You are my son. I have begotten you. I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. Who's going to dislodge him? The word of God comes back to David, it assures David's heart. David is reminded of that chesed covenant that he has with God that steadfast love that will not change based on the circumstances and whether it's the sin of his own heart condemning him or the overwhelming circumstances of his enemies and foes that are against him he comes to the assurance that God will be faithful he will not change he will not forget he will not abandon him to modify a a Groucho Marx quote, what are you going to believe, God's word or your own two eyes? Which is more reliable? What God says or what you feel, what you perceive with your own two eyes, what your heart tells you. Which one of those in the balance are you going to listen to? That was the situation that David had to face. That's the situation that we face. We all face this challenge of either listening to our heart or preaching God's truth to our hearts. Do you listen to God's word or to your perceptions? Let me give you an example. I am overwhelmed. Okay, do you believe that God has given you more than he will give you the strength to bear? I'm anxious. Do you believe that God's sovereignty has come to an end? Are you questioning his goodness? Well why? What why are you feeling that? What is happening there? I can't resist this sin any longer. Do you not believe that God has made a way of escape? You may have to suffer. But it's better to suffer than to sin. Just ask Joseph, Jesus. I can't trust anyone. Has God given us a spirit of fear? When we make these statements about ourselves, we are de facto making a statement about who God is. And so the question is, do you believe the truth of God's word or do you believe a facsimile that you have created in your mind of the world? Which truth do you believe? And that is the fundamental crisis that addresses each of us. And it's at this point that David says, I believe God's word. I believe what God has said about me is true. I believe that God is going to fulfill his promises, period. And from that, he drew his strength. And it motivated him to be able to act, not just passively lament his situation, but he is drawn into action. And you see that where he says, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. That's that's what Christ Remember the, the famous parable where he's talking and he says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It's a, it, it's a royal proclamation. It's a judgment. It's a, I'm looking at the situation and I'm judging right from wrong, truth from error, and those who have aligned with error depart from me. I will have nothing to do that. I hold that in condemnation. I affirm the truth. That's what a king is supposed to do. That's what the royal son of God, David, is called to do, to work justice and to do what is right. And now that David knows that he is approved by God, you see his confidence come back and his willingness to act. As long as you feel yourself under condemnation, you will feel that, that tension, that, 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 that hamstrung feeling of of not being able to act. But when that confidence that God is for you, that he is doing these things to bring about the end, it brings about action in our hearts and in our minds. Knowing who I am leads me to doing what I should do. And we get those two points right. It is a powerful antidote to discouragement, And to fear. Now, I don't pretend that that's a a silver bullet. There are other factors that can come in. We can have physiological things that that affect us and and such. But don't let the unique thing take away from the, the general principle that is true. And that is when I learn who I am, it leads me to do what I ought to do. And Jesus said, My yoke is easy. And my burden's light. What God has called us to do is not soul crushing. That's what sin does to us. Sin is soul crushing. The yoke of Jesus Christ is light. And so David is confident that God has heard his prayers. Throughout the psalm, you can see that he has used the divine name, That, where it says Lord in all capital letters. That's the covenant name of God. That, that name by which God pledged himself to the covenant with his people. I am your God. I am your father. And so David is relying upon that covenant. He is calling out to it. He is taking his identity from it. And you see that he is finding his deliverance in it. Well, let us remember that there is one who embodies this psalm better than David. Jesus Christ lived these experiences more fully, more completely than any of us will. Rebuke me not in your anger. The wrath of God fell upon Jesus Christ. And friends, that means that the wrath of God doesn't have to fall on you. He drank this bitter cup. Psalmist says, my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. Jesus was so troubled in the garden that he literally sweat blood. That's worse than swimming in tears. He begged the Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet, he was willing to drink it. The psalmist here says, deliver my life. Verse 4. And indeed, that's what Jesus experienced. On the third day, his eyes saw the light of life again. He was raised from the dead. The suffering and the anguish and the pain is only the down payment. It is only the beginning. The fulfillment comes through and God makes good on what he is doing. And he delivers him from the power of Sheol, from the power of death. He redeems his life from the pit, and he sets him on a rock, so that he may praise his name forever. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Only Jesus really did that. Truth is, we're like, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, most of the time, unless I like it. No, Jesus did that consistently. He was faithful to the end. And all of my enemies shall be ashamed. Jesus comes back to his disciples and says, all power is given to me on heaven and on earth. I'm going to tell you what to do. Here are your marching orders. Go out and make disciples. No one will stand against that and not be ashamed. That's the authority of Jesus Christ. He walked through this psalm. He lived it. He drank the bitterness to the bottom and then he gets the exaltation to the heavens at the end. His enemies will forever be ashamed. They will suddenly be cut off. He is indeed triumphant. Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that God has done this for you? That he has your best interest at heart? That in the midst of suffering, we don't need to know why, we need to know God. And that He will deliver us. I don't know when, but soon enough. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, do you want to have a God like this? Do you want to know that your sufferings are not pointless? that that there is a relief, that it isn't just black all the way down. Friends, this is the hope that is offered, that there is a covenantal relationship with God that is offered through Jesus Christ, his Son, the royal Son of God, who rules and reigns forever. With him, you can face turmoil and pain honestly, without evasions and euphemisms, because you know that the story ends well. Friends, that's the Jesus Christ that we serve. That's the character of the God in whom we trust and to whom we can take our laments. He is merciful, he is sovereign, he is good, and he will deliver his children. Let us pray.